Let's dive in this morning. We've been, we've been working through Jeremiah 29 and this whole rooted initiative, this rooted campaign. And, and the idea, and we y'all know that we have purchased 48 acres of land over here on Cedar Crest Road. It's really, really exciting. So we're in this season of really talking about, hey, what is it going to mean to be a church that when we plant our roots deep into this community, that we bring about an effect Great change because of the work of Jesus in our lives and through our lives. That's kind of the, the catalyst. We want to be a people who God is, we are connected with God, right? We're rooted in Christ and that we then, and rooted in Christ, that we then are then rooted in our community for a long term to bring about effective change. And so we said, for that to happen, we believe there's this progression that we see in Jeremiah 29. And a progression, I want to say this, that I believe that you're seeing in all of your lives, hopefully every day, and it's simply this. First, there comes about an awakening. We have an awakening, which leads to, we have an awakening in our lives. So the awakening is simple. We're kind of living lives, kind of focused on self, focused on our lives, focused on stuff with us, right? And sometimes we even lose sight of God. So the first thing God wants to do is he wants to awaken us to our relationship with him. How is that going? Where is it, right? He's always awakening us to the context of our relationship together, just like for those of you who are married you are always needing to be awakened to how you're doing in the context of your relationship with your spouse or with your children. Because if you're unaware of how you're doing in your relationship, you're probably not doing well, right? So we want to be awakened to the primary relationship that we're in with Jesus. And God's always, every day, I would say, trying to awaken us and wanting to awaken us. The second awakening we see in Jeremiah 29 is he wants them to awaken his people. God wants to awaken his people to the needs and to the broken places of the community in which they're a part of. And so that's the idea. God wants to awaken us to relationship with him, then awaken us to, to those who are lost, those who are needed, those who are broken, those who are distant, far off from God in our community. So then with that awakening, we said it comes with a compassion, like your, your heart all of a sudden is awakened, and that compassion usually compels you to move forward to do something, right? And so we said that compassion then leads to ownership. I, I, I'm awakened to a situation. I have compassion for it. So I say in that compassion that I'm going to have ownership. I'm going to take responsibility, right? I'm going to walk the extra mile in the context of my life with this. I'm going to own this. I'm going to be responsible for it. I'm going to take it very, very seriously, which then leads us to this morning talking about ownership leading to action. So before I, so I would just say this, this is real quick. I believe that God is working this progression in your life right now. And, and it's really healthy to ask ourselves in the process, all right, God, where am I in this progression? Because to be honest with you, God's probably doing this in some form or fashion every day. Like every day he wants me to be awakened to my relationship with Jesus. Every day he wants me to be awakened to my relationship with my neighbors, right? Because that's the great commandment to love God, love neighbor. Every day he wants me to own that relationship with him and own the relationship with those or to have compassion for him and to have compassion for those outside, to own relationships, be responsible. And then every day to have some form of action. 
And so every day we're asking ourselves, God, where are we in this progression? One movie scene, I kind of named this movie a few weeks ago, that, that there's a movie scene that really kind of t- brings this out. It's one of those movies that you can watch over and over again. Do you, you have those movies? Like, like, I don't know about you, but I have those movies that when they come up, oh, I should probably just stop and watch this, right? And I've seen it like 50 times. I can probably quote the movie, right? So whenever Star Wars comes on, I'm like, ah, I just feel this, like need to watch or Lord of the Rings, right? Or remember the Titans? I mean, come on, right? But one of those for me, and I've named it the last few weeks, is Blindside. Blindside, right? This, this stars Sandra Bullock and I guess Tim, Tim McGraw. I don't really know what he's doing in the movie, right? I mean, uh, right. But yes, Sandra Bullock, right? And so she's this, she's Leanne Tuohy's, this is true story of Michael Orr. Michael Orr, right? And so you remember in the movie, they're doing their life, kind of focused on self, running their, running the business that they have and taking kids to school and just doing life. And they're sitting at a stop sign after a basketball game. It's cold and rainy and Big Mike, as they call him, walks in front of their BMW. And Leanne goes, who's that? I go, that's just Big Mike. And she's like, where's he going? Like, I don't know. So she rolls on the way. Hey, Big Mike, where are you going? He's like, I'm going to the gym. She's like, oh, okay, or something, right? And then she rolls the window back up. And then what happens? You remember? It's the moment of awakening. She goes, huh. Isn't that what awakening is always like? That, huh. Like you all of a sudden your brain starts spinning. You stop in your own thought process and thinking about self and my own business, my own schedule, my own time, my own kids, my own husband, my own life, everything in my own life. And I go, huh, big Mike. She goes, turn on, turn this way, right? You see her. She's like, turn, turn, turn this way, right? And she kind of, they turn and she's like, big mind. She gets and she gets out of the car and says, where are you going? She's like, I'm going to the gym. And she goes, well, the gym's that way. You're going the wrong direction. He's like, uh, right? And then there's that moment of, she has compassion. And then she owns the moment. She's like, and then Tim McGraw's character, right, says, you know, says, Sean says, oh, I've seen that look before. Something's about to happen. And then by action, she says, get in my car. You're going home with us. You know, there's a story, if you haven't seen the movie, the trajectory of his life changes forever. He comes and lives in their home, becomes part of the family. He's on the family Christmas card, right? In Mississippi, right? It's like you've got, he ends up doing well in school. He ends up going to Ole Miss and ends up becoming a first-round draft pick for the Baltimore Ravens and then wins a Super Bowl. All because of this. Hmm. The moment of awakening. Like you felt that. Like I, every time I watch the movie, I tear up in that scene, tearing up talking about it. Because there's that moment like where God just brings an awakening. You have a compassion. Like this morning we were talking, I was like, well, can't all these kind of go to, like, aren't they kind of all, like, they're all intermingled? I'm like, yes, like, that's why when a God awakens us, we have a compassion and ownership and an action immediately in our lives. Like, there's, like, we break them down to help us understand, but they all kind of happen like this. She went like this, and within, like, one minute, he's in the car going to their house. And so when we talk this morning about awakening to compassion to ownership and then to a to an action. I want you to to really begin to see that picture that God brings in ownership. And so this morning, ownership must lead to action. Ownership for us in the context. Listen, ownership in Jeremiah twenty nine and ownership in our lives. 
always demands an action. We all understand what action means, kind of defined. It speaks to motion. It speaks to activity. It speaks to something being done by someone. Like there's, there's no action apart from movement. There's no action apart from someone doing something. That's why we use phrases like this. Actions speak louder than absolutely, right? Or judge people by their actions, not by their words, because we all understand the importance of action and we all understand the importance of our relationships. Because without action, there is really truly no expression of love. Action Excuse me, love is always an action. It's always a movement. It's always something that's an action. Love is always an action. We see clearly when looking at love defined in Scripture as being an action. So put this up on the screen. You see three Scriptures. You've read them. You know them. Here we go. Romans chapter 5, 8, 1 John 4, 10, John 15, 12, and 13. So here's the deal. I'm going to read them. I want you, at the very end of it, I'm going to go, all right, passive or active, and then you're going to answer one of those two words. You ready? Passive or active. Here we go. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Passive or active? Fantastic. First John, you, that's a, you get a gold star, right? First John 4, 10, we're not a one so far. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and or by sending his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Passive or active. John 15, 12 and 13. My command is this. Love each other in the same way that I've loved you. Because greater love is no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Passive or active. Absolutely right. Jesus says, hey, this is the expression of love. It's an action of laying down your life for someone else. And so biblically speaking, like there are moments where we can be still with the one that we love. But let's be honest, it's still active. It's still like I'm creating a presence for you to know that I am with you. Like it's like it's active passivity, right? Do you ever sit with your spouse or with your friend and not say a word, but know that you are loving one another just by being together? Like that's not passive. That's active. It's like I'm like I in my life, I'm sitting with you intentionally for a purpose of knowing you're not alone. When my mom died, my, one of my good friends, Dallas, he came and sat in for two days straight. He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He just sat. And every single time, literally every single time I was overwhelmed in a moment, I knew that he was behind me and his active passivity brought me comfort. It was active in nature. When we are awakened from self, to compassion for another or a situation, then it leads us to own relationships or own situations by expressing love in action. That's what we see. It's the flow of life. It is true in your marriage relationships. 
It's true in your parental relationships with your children. It's true in your friendships. It's true at work. Without love and action, these in these relationships, there you will find an unhealthy relationship. Without action, love expressing itself in action, there we find an unhealthy relationship. In Jeremiah 29, God is calling his people God is calling his people ultimately to action in the lives of the Babylonian people. As we said a few weeks ago, the Babylonians, they represent a lost people. Right? They represent a lost people, those who are far from God. In fact, we've said in the last several weeks that the Babylonians represent those who are farthest and most distant from God. They are, in a sense, the antithesis of God's people in, in this season of life, in this culture. And so in this, right, God then is awakened to their need. God has compassion for them, and he is going to own breakthrough in their life. What is his action? Do you know? Well, his action is simple. He sent his people to go and to show them God. That's his action. His action is saying, all right, well, I'm going to send you. Go into Babylonia and make disciples of all peoples. Right? You've heard that scripture. Jesus says to his disciples, go make disciples. Action, right? Go make disciples of all nations. He's basically saying here to, to Israel, to really to Judah, to Judah, the people of God, I, I'm calling you to Babylon. You are my action. I'm sending you. I'm going to plant you, my people in this community. I want you to plant your roots deep here and seek their peace, their shalom, their peace, and their prosperity. It's an action, an action on behalf of those whom God has compassion for. And so I want you to see in Jeremiah 29, now here's the action. God's sending them, planting them, and say, now I want you to go to this lost people whom you don't even like who you are distant, distant from, like they are the antithesis of what you think, feel, and believe. And I want you to get over self and over your tensions and over all this frustration and anger and all this animosity that defines you in relationship with them. I want you to look beyond all of that to recognize I have, I'm, I'm awakened to their need. I have compassion for them. I, I'm owning this and I'm owning it by sending you. So, Let's look at just four specific types of four specific things in the area of action that we're aware of in Jeremiah 29. All right, so here's the deal. I need you to focus because I'm actually going to say a lot in these pieces, and I'm going to actually have a couple of long quotes that I don't want you to get bored in, right? Because I think they're really, really important. That's why they're here, okay? So I want you to, all right, here we go. All right, I'm going to focus on this, okay? So four primary points, okay, in the area of action 
There are going to be a couple of picture-worthy moments here in a second of things. There's some quotes that someone has said that are a lot better than what I could ever come up with on my own. Here we go. The first thing that we see in Jeremiah 29 about action that we all experience in our own life in action is unproductive action. Unproductive action. So as we talked about a few weeks ago, I've already said here, there, there was action. There was action in Jeremiah 28 taking place in their Israelite people. It was an activity of revolt. They were revolting. They literally were making the prophets and encouraging the prophets, specifically Hananiah, say, prophesy and tell us what we want to hear, that God wants us to revolt. He's going to give us the victory over these heathens, these pagans, that we're better than they are. So go ahead and tell us that so we can go ahead and in righteousness, we can do righteous revolt. And Hananiah goes, yes, the Lord wants you to know that he is with you. He's going to give you strength that when you revolt, he's going to be with you, that your king is going to come back from a hiding, right? And that he's going to give you victory. And Jeremiah comes and says, no, Hananiah, you're in sin and you're going to die. And he did six months later. Because what I want you to know is that your, your action is being unproductive. You're revolting, you're revolting, you're revolting, and you're literally missing what God is doing. It's unproductive. You've literally missed God. You've pushed back against God's will. You've pushed back against God's plan. You've been arguing incessantly. You've never actually submitted to actually listen and hear what God may actually be doing in the moment to move you to productive activity, which is to submit yourself to God's plan, to not literally be the reason that Babylon doesn't turn to God. Like, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I watch a lot of Christians whose primarily only, their only friends in life are other believers. The only people they can actually hang out with and get along with are other believers. They literally get around unbelievers like, Aah! and they just freak out. So they just hang out. In their, in their little holy huddle, this like Christian ghetto that everyone's afraid to come to. Like they hang out in a Christian ghetto wearing Christian clothes and using Christian language and having Christian gatherings that no one knows how to connect with. And so everyone freaks out and no one comes to hang out with them. They live an unproductive Active life. What do we do with that? Like, what are the people that you know that really don't like church and they don't like Christians and they don't like Jesus because the church has had a bunch of active, unproductive activity? I mean, can you get on the list? Like, I don't have to get on the list, do I? I mean, you want me to? I don't have to. I mean, you can, we can get on the list. Like, do you know people who just think Christians are hypocrites? Do you know why they think that? Because the ones they met were. Unproductive activity. What does it look like in your life? Where do you have unproductive activity? Where do you live in condemnation of those who Jesus doesn't condemn? Why do you expect non-Christians to act like Christians and talk like Christians and to look like Christians? Jesus doesn't expect them to. He just wants to love them. So in time that they will repent. I mean, have you followed the life of the disciples? 
when did the disciples become Christians? When did Peter, James, and John, when did they officially get saved? Do you know? Were they already Christians when they came? Were they, you know, was there even that? Was there a moment at the end of John where God, Jesus breathes his Holy Spirit into them, like in the 20s chapters? So it's been like three years of hanging out, and that's when they became Christians? But he hung out with them for three years, doing life, watching them argue with one another, and Peter and John, like, duke it out, you know, like Peter cutting off ears of people? Like, when? I mean, do you know the answer to that? And so productive activity was taking those who we don't really know when they officially came to Christ, but God, Jesus was discipling them and giving the best of himself anyway with productive activity. Loving them. You belong first. You believe second. And then you act right third. This is how it works. Let's be productive in our activity. Number two. Is the action of growing self. It's the action of growing self. So before God calls them to action on behalf of others, he first calls them to the action of growing and strengthening themselves. We saw it in verse 5 and 6. All right, here we go. Before we get to verse 7, guys, we get you worked up here, okay? Build houses. I want you to settle down. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to eat what they produce. Okay. I want you to marry and have sons and daughters. I want you to find wives for your sons. I want you to give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. I want you to increase in number there, right? I don't want you to decrease. What is he saying right here? All right. So I want you to get to a place where, listen, you're investing into your financial your financial capabilities, right? Your financial viability. I want you to come. I want you to go ahead and build houses. Don't pl- get rid of your tents. Let's build houses. I want you to get healthy. I want you to get into a whole place. I want you to get to a, a place where you can actually minister from. I want you to get to a, to a healthy place where your family is growing. Invest in your family. Make sure your family is established. Make sure your family is stable. Let's get to a healthy place in your life so that as you, even as you do that, then you can seek the prosperity and the peace of the place in which you live. The idea is the action of growing self. We can never forget Jesus' words to his own disciples. Love your neighbor as you first love yourself. Self-growth, investment into your, into your physical health, your spiritual health, your emotional health. You can't ultimately, you can't ultimately help somebody else if you're living in a state of incredible unhealth. That's why, I mean, like the first time I was in the airplane, you've heard this before, right? It seemed really rude. If in case of cabin pressure, the loss of cabin pressure, oxygen mass will fall down, right? And before you place it, before you place it on your loved one, place it on your face first. Secure it tightly and then put it on your loved one. And the whole idea is like when like your like your loved one screams and your first thought is for self and you're like, hey, I gotta take care of me. Why? Because if you're dead, you can't help anybody. If you can't breathe, you can't do anything. If you're not healthy, you can't help somebody else get healthy. Self-growth, get yourself established, invest into self, get ourselves healthy and whole, right? Now, we do it at the same time. As they were doing that, they were seeking the prosperity. It was like a love, love yourself and love your neighbor all at the same time. And what God's getting is like an, act, an action here of, self, of growing self. God, here's the point. God's really invested into their self-growth. 
Before I tell you to go do, I want you to stop and plant your roots in me. Which then leads to the third thing, which is the action of serving others in need. In verse 7, really last week, God calls them to serve the city, right? To seek the peace, the shalom and prosperity of the city and to pray to the Lord for it. So while living in Babylon, they're not called to increase their tribe again in some Jewish ghetto within the city. They are to use their resources to benefit the common good. The great tension we will all face is where do we give the greatest amount of energy? Our needs or the needs of others? And I just want you to hear me say this morning, our focus is balance. Like you've read the story. Let me just put it in Steve language real quick, okay? I'm not trying to create a new Bible or a new gospel. I'm just going to put it in Steve language, the Steve version, right? The ISB, the inspired Steve version. Did you like that real quick? All right. Now I'm going to the Steve version of the story. Jesus is... Jesus has got thousands of people around him. He's ministering to them. And there's still a long line of people. And Jesus looks at the line, looks at the father, looks at the line. There's thousands. He says, sorry, I'm out of here. I'm tapped out. I got to go be with the father. Because I ain't got nothing to give no more. And I got to go get him some more. So I'm going to go be with the father. So he says he pulls away and he leaves thousands of people and probably offends them. Have you ever been offended with your pastor because he has to leave because he's been hanging out? He's been there for an hour. And they're like, you're the next person in the line. He's like, listen, that's why I got to go. He's like, ah, why is he tapped out? Have you ever experienced that with your kids? Like, I just can't, ah, I can't beat you anymore. I'm tapped out, tapping out. And then you go and Calgon it, right? Calgon, take me away. Jesus Calgon it. Man, he's like, I got to pull away. I got to give it to Father. I got to go replenish. Did he stay in Calgon world like we all want to do and just live on vacation? No. He came back and what did he do? Hey, go bring your buddy back. Here we go. They're just following everywhere we go, right? They're following us. They're going to come back. Somewhere along the way, Jesus ministered to him. In the fullness of having been replenished by being with the Father. You, because you're an American, are really good at giving and never slowing down to receive. We call it pull up your bootstraps. You should slow down and pull up the bootstraps. I need to slow down and pull up the bootstraps. You're not superhuman. The only superhuman who's ever lived is Jesus. And he modeled for us pulling away to replenish. So he has something to give. Our goal in service. And here you go. This is, be a, this is an Oswald Chambers moment. I'm going to read this. You can follow along as I read. The process, this is biblical language here. The process of being broken bread and poured out wine, like being Jesus to people, means that you have to be the nourishment for other people's souls until they learn to feed on God. They must drain you completely to the very last drop. But be careful to replenish your supply or you will quickly... You will, you, or you will quickly be utterly exhausted. Until others learn to draw on the life of the Lord Jesus directly, they will have to draw on his life through you. 
You must literally be their source of supply until they learn to take their nourishment from God. I read this ten times the other day. I think it was on Thursday. I read it ten times. Like it just, again, it just solidified this calling that I have, the calling that we have. And it, I love that. I, like it's imperative. He just said that without the replenish part. I mean, have you thought about the disciples for those three years? I mean, did they offer anything to Jesus? The one thing he asked them to do was to come and pray with them at the end of the three years, and they fell asleep? Awesome. All right? They're just drawing from him. And Jesus wants to get to the place where we're healthy, and so we, we I'm not sure what the right word is, deplenish, right? And then we replenish. We, let, we, we pour out, and then we replenish. This is a call. This is what he's saying. This is what he's saying to Jeremiah 29. Like, listen, guys. Listen, build and seek the prosperity. Build and pray for the peace side. Which leads, number four, to the action of remaining holy. And this one makes, this one's a little bit more of a thought process. It's a little bit long, so I'm going to do my best to get through this. But the action of remaining holy. So think about this. And here's the thing. I want you to do your best to kind of let go of, like, your holiness messages from the last 40 years. Okay. And hear it fresh and anew. Because I'll be honest with you, I think there were some holiness messages that kind of went a little bit off back in the day. So just simply stated, to be holy means to be set apart for a divine purpose. So it means Jesus came and says, I choose you and I'm going to pluck you up from where you are and I'm going to set you over here. I'm going to set you apart because I have a unique calling and a divine purpose for your life. And so in this divine purpose then, this is the holiness language, right? Then you have to be really, really careful what you're giving yourselves to, what you're entertaining yourself with, because we don't want anything to ultimately distract you from what you've been set apart for and the calling that you have. So the goal of holiness is not to step out of imperfection. The goal of holiness is to do what God's called us to do without anything hindering us. So the holiness message forever was like, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. And that's not holiness. Holiness is accomplishing what I was set apart for, making sure secondarily, right, that what could hinder me, I stay away from. That's what, that's a, that's where we miss the language. We kind of do this with it. And so God has set us apart for his divine purposes. We don't don't do anything that's going to hinder us from fulfilling the calling he's given us. And so this is what it looks like, right? We see it happening in Jeremiah 28 and 29. I set you apart, Israel, for a divine purpose to go and to lead this people to God. They're set apart from God, and I have chosen you, right? I've given them, a, I've given them, given you a unique call to go to the Babylonian people. They are called to invest the best of themselves wholeheartedly into the city so that this city would ultimately turn back to God. And that's really important. But then, but we do see this holiness of being like, now be careful what you do in the context of, of your life and the things that you're doing. Because he says in Daniel chapter 1, how many of you know that Daniel is a contemporary of Jeremiah? Daniel was one of the very ones, thank you Alex for raising your hand, right? Daniel was one of the ones who was first taken from Judah, from, from Jerusalem, in to Babylon. The best and the brightest went first. 
And so in Daniel chapter 1, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I encourage you to read it. Remember, this is, this is the part that says, listen, I'm not going to eat of the meat. I'm not going to do this, this, and this. And the idea, very, very simple, is in Daniel 1, God warns Israel against defiling themselves through the over-assimilation to a pagan culture. He says, be, be careful. Like, invest yourself fully, but be careful that you don't assimilate into the unholy parts, right? The things that are going to hinder you from fulfilling the calling that I have for you in Babylon. Using words we've all used in the church, right? They're called to be in the world, but not of it. Right? That's our answer to assimilate. Oh, you're called to be in the world, but not of it. Right? Just an aside to that. Just pay attention to this real quick. If you want to figure out what, like, the um, boundaries are for holiness, you ready for this? On one side is John the Baptist. Nazarite vow, never cuts, never shaves, right? Eating locusts, living in poverty, right? Over here, never, never partaking of wine, and he's called an idiot, right? Called a fool. The flip side to that is Jesus, who's hanging out with sinners all the time, right? He is eating, he is drinking alcohol that had alcohol in it. That's why they called him a drunkard, because it had alcohol in it. Like, you can't get drunk on grape juice, guys, right? So if you want the kind of path of where holiness resides, it's somewhere between Jesus and John the Baptist, the greatest born of woman, and Jesus saying, John being the greatest born of woman. This is this pathway that we have to wrestle through sometimes that what your convictions of holiness are may not be mine and what do you do with that so i give you that because i think that you're all mature and you can handle that tension and go and pray and figure it out because it may help you sometimes to stop throwing stones at your brother who may have more of a conviction like john the baptist than you do or vice versa like jesus than you do and go all right are you remaining holy in it are you remaining set apart so that you can fulfill the calling that god has given on your life and not over assimilating into the culture and having things that are deterring you absolutely then fantastic your life can look different than mine because I don't get to set the tone of conviction for the rest of the world. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, to convict the world of sin and of righteousness. I want to release you from being the conviction of every single person that you ever meet. So, in the New Testament, they use this beautiful word. I'm going to butcher it. Parepa, parepa, parepa de moi. Parepa de moi means resident aliens. We find it specifically in First Peter and James, right? In this thinking, the resident alien, this word right here, I'm not going to say it again, just look at it, right? They live in one specific place, but they have ultimate allegiance to another country. In other words, their resident aliens live neither as natives to a place, nor as tourists. Think, think, think the Jews here in Jeremiah 29. They were not permanently rooted where they were. Neither were they mere travelers who were passing through. Here is resident aliens. Their ultimate allegiance belongs to God and his kingdom. Yet, in keeping with the term used by Peter and John, believers are not just passing through here. Instead, they are to have the same balanced attitude the Jewish exiles were called to have towards Babylon. 
To be in but not of, right? To connect and give but not completely assimilate, right? They were to be fully involved in life, working in it and praying for it at the same time. They were not to adopt the culture or lose their distinctive identity as God's holy people. God called the Jewish exiles to accept and embrace the tension of the city in which they live for the sake of God's glory. And this is what Christians are called to do today as well. Let me just say something real quick. I heard Alan Hirsch say this one time. He said, if we're going to live missionally like this, like living on mission every day as missionaries wherever we go, it's going to require a, whole, a, a higher level of holiness than the church has ever had to experience and live in before. Because it's not as hard to be holy when I live only around Christians. It is much harder to live holy when I'm living around people who are not. Therefore, what does it demand? It demands being more greatly rooted in Jesus and spending more time with him because I'm giving myself out more and I'm coming up against the world. Therefore, I need Jesus every day to wash my feet because I'm walking in a sin-riddled world of a culture that I don't want to over-assimilate in, and I live in tension of what do I assimilate into and not. And knowing that what you assimilate into may not be what I can assimilate into myself, and I live with attention that God has different convictions for different people, Jesus on one side and John the Baptist on the other. Like, that's hard. You've been, you love messages, right? Ties it up real neat. It tells you what you can and can't do because you don't want to have to go hear from God yourself. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to go hear for yourself. You don't have to hear from your pastor. He doesn't have the market on what I believe and what I think and what I know. Your small group leader, your mentor even, between you and the Lord. Resident aliens will always live with both the praise of the world around them and misunderstanding. Jesus taught that Christians' good deeds are to be visible to those in the world who don't know him and, and the idea they'll experience persecution. Like in, in Acts chapter 2 and 4, it says they were enjoying the favor of all the people, and then Stephen got killed, <laughs> right? And there was the great, the, the great dispersion. They had like lived with tension. So this morning... God wants to bring the Lee and Tui, that, hmm, which leads to compassion, which leads to ownership, which leads to action. In that action, man, God wants to do this work. Man, make sure your action is productive. It's actually drawing. It's actually not repelling unbelievers, but drawing them in, right? Make sure that you are, make sure you are act, actively caring for self, growing self. Make sure that you are actively serving others and make sure that you are actively pursuing holiness. What does that mean? I am every day always primarily in holiness, not focusing on my sin, but thanking God for what he set me apart for. You want to talk about conquering sin, stop thinking about it so much and start thinking about what you've been called to. It's a lot more life-giving to think about what I've been set apart for for God, because when I see them set apart for God, I go, well, I don't want to sin because it's going to hinder me from accomplishing that. If I think my only job in life is to accomplish not sinning, then I'll never focus on what he has for me. I want to focus to be set apart, and that's what I focus on, holiness. I want to give myself, Jesus, to focus on what I've been set apart for, and I don't secondarily want to sin because it hinders me from fulfilling your calling in my life. What do we ultimately want the church to look like? Well, let me read this. I'm going to read this from Rodney Stark. It's two, it's two paragraphs. 
It's from a book called The Rise of Christianity. It's the Rise of Christianity. It's a, he's a Christian sociologist who's looked basically at, at society and how society was impacted by Christians and the Christian church throughout history. Right? So he's going to give his thoughts and opinion on this, and this is ultimately a goal that we're going to set for ourselves. Here we go. To cities filled with the homeless, this is throughout history, right? To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments, a place to belong, right? To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family, right? He puts the orphan in families, right? The idea of of true religion is this, to care for the orphan and the widow. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity or oneness, right? Neither black nor white, Greek nor Jew. There's just one Christian, right? Christians. People had been enduring catastrophes for centuries without the aid of Christian theology or social structures. Hence, I am by no means suffering that the misery of the ancient world caused the advent of Christianity. What I'm going to argue is that once Christianity did appear, its superior, I love this, its superior capacity for meeting these chronic problems soon became evident and played a major role in its ultimate triumph. For what Christians brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. We're not defined by culture. We create it. We don't live in fear of culture. We model it. And as God took the Israelites into Babylon, the expectation was go and live like this and bring a new culture and set you apart to do it. Don't over-assimilate. Don't become too much like them and all of a sudden you become irrelevant. But instead, go in and be faithful as a resident alien to the kingdom culture that I've called you to. And in living that kingdom culture, then you will shift the culture as you bring shalom, peace, and prosperity to the city in which you live. And in time, all of a sudden you find you don't just have a Christian culture, you have a Christ-centered culture and all that we do, right? And Christ is exalted there. And if you want to know what God is setting us apart, he says, I am made you holy by giving you 48 acres of land so that you will go and that you will be, listen, that you will awaken, you will have compassion, you'll have ownership, and you will have action and holiness. And I want you to continually be receiving from me because you are not, you have nothing. You have nothing apart from relating to me on an everyday basis, an everyday basis. But as you go in me and as you go, you will create culture in your workplace, in your home, in your family, right? In your neighborhood, in our community, and let alone here at church. All right, let's pray. Father, 
Lord, this morning we pray for this awakening. That you would awaken us from thinking that has missed the mark. That you would awaken us from this view that we live of self primarily that keeps us from seeing others and primarily seeing you. I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would bring us to a place of compassion. We'd have a compassion for our relationship with you that would lead, guide, and direct us. We'd have a compassion for for those who don't know you, who are far off, who are hurting. I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would bring an ownership in all of these things. God, I I don't know what this is going to be, but I'm going to own this. I would own my relationship with you. I would own my relationship with those who are outside who don't know. And that God would lead us, God, to a life-giving activity, productive activity. Although we could spend forever this morning talking about what does unproductive activity look like? How do we define holiness, God? But I just, this morning, God, I pray that you'd help us. I pray that God, you would just lead us into your presence today to hear your voice and to speak over us. So Jesus, have your way in us this morning. This morning, I would invite you to respond as the Lord leads. We have our offering baskets always available. This is just an act of worship every morning. We have our ministry teams that will be available to come pray for you, to pray for breakthrough, to pray for awakening, to pray for healing, just to pray for and then filling of God's Spirit into your life. We have communion available gluten-free, yay, right? To come this morning and to partake of the body and the blood of Jesus, to remember, but as we remember them, we're awakened again to the fact that his body and blood was broken, poured out and broken then so that we could experience it again afresh and new today. These kind of messages are a little bit hard, like, how do I respond? Like, it's not touchy-feely, like, oh, right, God, move my heart. No, it's, it's more of like, all right, Let's go do it. Let's have, a, let's, have a, let's have a business conversation with the Lord. In business conversations with the Lord, like I have those with my daughters. All right, let's be honest. Let's have a real heart-to-heart conversation. Let's have a heart-to-heart conversation about life. Let's talk about your future. Let's talk, you know, getting at like, the, like their heartfelt, their compassion, that they're, they're beautiful. But like it's a business. Like the, it's like let's get to, let's be honest. Let's have an honest conversation. Maybe like honest conversation better. But in that honesty, like God, where am I? Where am I in the context of my activity? And God, am I... Is my, is my life predominantly unproductive in what I'm expressing? Am I so, so self-focused, God, that I can't get outside of that? Whatever it may be, let him talk to you about holiness. And maybe maybe you just don't like this road that I've created about what holiness looks like. And that's fine. Go ask the Lord. See what he says. Challenge his life. See what it look like this comparison. to say, all right, well, God, that's actually pretty freeing then. I don't have to spend my life convicting my brother of sins that you told me to stop doing. And God, I pray for them, you convict them of sin and of righteousness. John 17, what's the job of the Holy Spirit? To convict the world of sin and of righteousness. And so this morning, I want you just to go on this journey with the Lord. But the end of this, and hear this, the end of it's real simple. The end of it is not right thinking. The end of it is right thinking that leads to right action. Because there is no love apart from action. Now, you just respond to the Lord leads. We're officially done this morning. 
And so you respond as the Lord leads. When you're ready to go, then you are free to go. You guys have a great week.